So welcome back to Across the Pond. This is episode four, your podcast. We're talking about tech, latest happening and current affairs, looking where the world's going in terms of future developments and also striving to be better people in every sense. And uh, yeah, we're back, Barry. Chad, play that jingle. Absolutely. So welcome back to Across the Pond. As we said, we're now in December. It's Barry's time to take his month break on social media. (laughs) How does it feel to be in December, Barry? It's very bizarre. I deleted my apps last night after a 21st birthday that I went to. And so I feel naked. I feel emotionally naked. Um, And a few times today, I've gone to the folder where the apps used to be and they're not there (laughs) anymore. So it really shows that it's December. It's holiday time. It's time to look back on the year and kind of think about what 2020 is going to look like. How are you doing, Chad? Yeah, all good. As you said, I mean, it's a a scary thought to think we're that far down in the year. I was kind of thinking of partaking on this experiment last night um but and? yeah i think i might maybe uh, kind of refine it a little bit more in in that uh, i maybe restrict myself to a few days rather than taking the whole month off cold but we'll see still got to do some thinking on that shall <laughs> we get to the week that was let's do it the week that was All right. And in this week's The Week That Was, we're looking at some stories from London, Uh, two very important stories. Obviously, we know the UK election is coming up very quickly and very soon. And uh, there's a lot of drama in the press and a lot of things going on. And one of the stories we picked out for this week was uh, Google banning some advertisements from the Conservative Party. Uh, Chad, do you want to take us through this one and what Google did in this regard? Yeah, so uh, this this kind of follows on from one of our previous episodes where we discussed Twitter actually having some problems with uh, the Conservative Party changing their Twitter handle during a live debate. Uh, this, as I said, a developing story where Google has apparently banned eight adverts coming out of the Conservative camp. And uh, yeah, basically these adverts all broke Google's rules. Uh, as you will know, uh, Google AdWords Uh, you know, being their kind of advertising platform. And uh, this kind of falls into the sort of fake news uh, territory. So essentially, six of these eight ads basically were banned when the Labour Party launched their manifesto. Uh, So at that exact time, the Tories actually launched a website that was called labormanifesto.co.uk. Can you believe it? Um, and so they essentially, on the nose. Like <laughs> I mean, not not trying to hide it at all. That, no. that you know, pretty pretty explicit. That as far as as far as I'm concerned. And uh, yeah, I mean, took out six ads to essentially push that site up to the Google AdWords sort of number one rating, so that anyone who was actually looking for Labour's manifesto and you know kind of wanted to get a feel for what their policies were, trying to you know decide for themselves uh, who to vote for in this election, they were redirected to this uh, fake site. Well, that was at least the intention. Google stopped it from happening and actually put out a statement saying, we value honesty and fairness, so we don't allow the promotion of products or services that are designed to enable dishonest behavior. We had the, uh, obviously, Cambridge Analytica scandal a couple of years back, and uh, it seems like all of Zuckerberg's hours in Parliament and Congress have uh, you know, played out in, in this way, Google now actually taking some action. Yeah, I think so. I think it's kind of emblematic of the the ethical dilemma we've been facing in the last five to 10 years. As these major content platforms like Google and Facebook and the rest of them 
are starting to have to take on some social responsibility for what happens on their platform, right? Previously, they saw themselves just tech companies and they were just like, they would say to you, it's just users are generating this content. We've got nothing to do with it. We just serve it to people. Yeah. And now we're starting to, to pull out because of the amount of influence that they have and because they control the pipes of information all around the world, they need to start having some sort of social conscience and to be able to make these kinds of calls. So it's a very, very controversial one because of course, freedom of speech is the debate here is that what rights um i i should be able to put up any website that i want as long as it's not hate speech right but this gets into a gray area where you're starting to create fake things you're starting to um impersonate other beings impersonate other parties it really starts getting a bit tricky and a bit muddy um and so i think it's a very interesting debate and i think it's quite nefarious to be honest 100 percent. i i mean as we discussed i think it's quite blatant and i'm i'm abs- absolutely surprised uh, at the sort of levels they're they're going to now i o- offline uh, sent you actually a, a a recording of basically an interview with boris johnson following the the, the twitter issue where they they changed their handle and uh, i mean essentially he he really just dodged the question and uh, and really hid behind the fact that he had not got involved in the matter i mean is that good enough for the party leader to you know kind of hide behind his team essentially um when you know these types of policies i would think should go through the leader yeah it's it's really not this is pure politics again this is the worst of politics when you see things like that happen i i feel like we're really struggling for strong leadership all around the world at the moment like when i look at the major leaders around the world i'm not inspired one iota like there's no enlightened leaders there's no people that are really stepping up and 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 putting their best foot forward and really like pushing the world forward it feels like we're in a bit of a lull where every single leader across the world seems to not be that great and is doing really really shady things and so it's yeah. certainly concerning it's very worrying for the uk uh, I'm, I'm wondering i was i'm curious what it seems like on the ground in london like chad what what are people talking about are they excited about this election is it kind of um something they are like avoiding talking about so what's kind of the the feeling on the ground over there yeah, so I mean, I think I think this election quite a unique one in that obviously Brexit is the sort of key one of one of the key things that you know yeah. is, is kind of driving driving this election. So, of course, I think everyone is kind of trying to split out what parties are doing what essentially, and a lot of their choices will be based on on that one sort of feature. Sure. But I think it's really important to remember here as well that you know ultimately these decisions um, beyond just Brexit are, are wide ranging. I mean this you know affects people uh, who who are, are jobless, you know th- th- this affects everyone in the in the country. So um I think in, just in terms of, of getting giving a sense of the, the feeling down here, uh, it's certainly you certainly get the feeling of of certain parties trying to sort of scram for for any support. I've certainly had knocks on my door which is something I've never had back in South Africa. Wow. You actually have party representatives knocking on your door. Uh, one time was actually 9 p.m. on a weeknight. Um, You're joking. Really just what, what 100%. Are they, what, yeah, what, what, yeah. They, what do they say when they knock on your door? Basically, uh, they say, hi, my name is X. I'm from X party. Uh, do you have a, a few moments just to chat about the, the coming election? And uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's definitely a, a much more sort of engaging process than it is being in South Africa and just seeing sort of posters while you're, you're driving by on the road. Whereas here, you know, every single time you're at the tube, there are people there handing out pamphlets. Um, and yeah, the, 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 there certainly is a, a sort of buzz uh, around the whole election process. Process. But in terms of, uh, you know, particular people's views and that kind of thing, um, I haven't really got too involved in that. You know, I, I kind of, I kind of, when it comes to politics, uh, everyone is entitled to their own view. And I, I sort of 
don't ask those kinds of questions um, to friends and, and the like. Um, but yeah, just in terms of the, the sort of general buzz and, and, and all of that, that's kind of what, it, what it's feeling like on the ground at the moment. Um, but certainly, I mean, in this age of information, I think these types of incidents uh, certainly play badly to anyone who's looking to actually participate on, in this election. It's amazing how politics has changed over the last few decades. Like from what it used to be to today, it seems to be a fully digital effort. Like that's why I'm so surprised that people are knocking <laughs> on the door. Because yeah. I, I would think that most of the resources would be going onto these sorts of things on websites and social media and advertising campaigns and those kinds of things because of the scale you can reach and the number of people you can reach as opposed to someone knocking on your door. So I'm very surprised by that. It's, it's, it's interesting. I think that politics has had such a shift recently that the, the there's a whole new set of skills that is needed to become a 21st century politician. And it almost feels like you need to have your own research team behind you and your social media team behind you to actually get your message out. Um, and so I'm, I'm very curious to watch what happens in this election and uh, what kind of precedent it sets for the UK and for Europe more generally. Because I know there are more countries looking to do this sort of referendum and this sort of conversation about the EU. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I mean, just in terms of as it develops, um, I will certainly get a little bit more entrenched in terms of what's happening here on the ground and, and sort of definitely will we'll start to bring a, a, a better kind of uh, paint a better picture for for anyone who, who's keen to to find out what's actually happening. Um, but yeah, I mean, this one was just a, quite an interesting one that, that popped up and I think, you know, we needed to, to chat about. Also, I think if, if anyone is listening to us right now and in the UK and you've got some thoughts on this, please let us know. We'd love to hear what you are thinking about the election, things that are going well, Definitely. things that aren't going well. If someone knocks on your door, please leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. Uh, we'd love to hear. I know we do have some listeners from the UK, so we'd love to hear from you guys as well. Yeah. I mean, certainly certainly in my case, uh, you know, whenever somebody knocks on the door, as much as I would like to, you know, kind of have the conversation and, and see what, see what you know, they, they actually have to say, I, uh, I myself can't vote in this election being a European national. Um, so, you know, it's kind of, uh, it would be sort of a waste of their time, uh, you know, for me to do that. Although it'll be cool to chat about on the podcast, I, I, I'm, I'm not <laughs> going to waste anyone's time. <laughs> you must bring them onto the next podcast when, when they come through. We're like, there we we, go. come on across the pond and tell us what you think. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we, we could definitely do that. So, uh, yeah, if there's anyone knocking on the door, uh, just make sure you're, okay with me having a microphone there so uh, yeah well <laughs> yeah so i mean let's let's uh, switch on to the next one um i'm not sure if you saw this on the news uh, there in south africa yeah, so I didn't I didn't originally on the South African news, but then you sent me the link and on I went onto Twitter and it was all over Twitter. So so we, we found out about it pretty quickly. And that's the attack on the London Bridge. Um, a very unfortunate um, terrorist attack to look like. Uh, it's it the, the, the details are still pretty shady and we're still trying to figure out exactly what happened. Chad, do you have a sense of can you give us a breakdown of what that what the event entailed? Yeah, so I mean, just like you, I, I think Twitter was uh, you know, definitely one of my key source of information when the event actually happened. So I was basically just uh, sitting at home. Obviously, it happened, uh, you know, on Friday, uh, Friday afternoon, and I'm, I'm sort of starting my next role, uh, kind of kind of this kind of coming week. So it was just sitting at home and basically got a BBC push notification to say that, you know, there was a shooting um, and essentially went on to do Twitter to see sort of all the, the, the videos and, and that kind of thing. So basically what happened here is it has been labeled as a terrorist attack. Um, Essentially, the, the, the person who, who sort of committed these stabbings um, was actually in prison before. They were caught as part of a group who were plotting to bomb the London Stock Exchange. Um, wow. When, 
Yeah, yeah. So when when this all happened, um, authorities basically assessed the whole situation and looked at the plans, and they basically concluded that some of these plans were quite rudimentary. Um, and because of that, you know, they weren't sure what what sort of sentence to to give, and and you know, kind of just weren't sure if these were this was just a group of people who would hopefully kind of grow up type of thing. Um, so. Yeah, essentially they they gave them a they gave this one particular individual a sixteen year sentence, and essentially in that time that the person was in prison, some of the regulations changed and they were released a little bit early. Um, part of this early release um, was that they were to be monitored um, on GPS monitoring, um, and I believe he had actually requested approval. So one of the conditions was that he could not come into London um, as part of this sort of probation uh, period and he had actually requested approval to go through to this uh, event which was a conference on prisoner rehabilitation. Sorry did you have a question there Barry? No 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 I'm I'm just I'm curious I'm enjoying this like that is that is a very yo that's a challenging one hey because how many of those how many of those people you, you you want those conferences to happen you want these prisoners to be reformed and you want to give the support structures needed for guys coming out of prison yeah. but something like this happens and that's the reason that they gave to get into London and all of a sudden it puts that whole project at risk yeah. I would think 100% so here we are there's a, a room of people all in this conference uh, on you know prisoner rehabilitation and from what i've heard all of a sudden this guy starts you know kind of stabbing stabbing a bunch of people uh so basically it developed from there where you know he kind of left the the building and worked his way onto the, the, the sort of london bridge um and i believe a bunch of civilians essentially went chasing after the guy one person even had a a massive tusk in his hand um and civilians essentially um hulled this guy down um Basically, obviously, the, the police were called and within five minutes, they uh, you know responded to the scene. Uh, it was confirmed that the police didn't have any intelligence on this attack. So it was kind of an off-the-cuff response, which is really, really good to, to know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, essentially, uh, with all of that, there was some sort of fear that he may have been wearing a vest um in which case uh, i think i think that was the sort of reason for for their response in terms of walking you know making trying to get everyone off you know keeping a bit of distance um from the guy and uh, you know ultimately they they sort of made the decision to to shoot um uh, you shoot to kill essentially yeah, I, I, th- um, I think i think from what i read i think he did have a fake vest on so it wasn't just like there was suspicion right. like they saw a vest on and right. they found they found out post the event that it w- there was a fake one but in that kind of situation it's very hard to know and tempers are flaring and you don't know what's going to happen um and london exactly. bridge is obviously a, a key part of london lots of people there lots of people around um and so there's actually a video of when they shot they shot the guy and it's, it's a quite a quite a, a rough video to watch um, and I, I was I was saying to a friend of mine, I, I don't remember ever seeing British police shoot at anybody. Like uh, I'm sure it's happened in the past, but it's not something that happens often, and it, it definitely is a, an anomaly. Um, and so there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of debates around was it the right decision, was it, was it the wrong decision? And obviously with hindsight, it's amazing because you can learn all these things about the person. You can learn about his history, his sure. background. You can look at the fact that the, v- the vest was fake and whatnot. But in the heat of the moment, it's it's uh, it's a fight or flight kind of response. And you hope the police have been trained as best they can to assess the situation, but they can never have all the information. Well, that's the thing. And I think, yeah, as you mentioned, it's going to be interesting to see whether that was or wasn't the right decision. Um, obviously, it being a tough one because you know terrorist attacks in London have, in recent years, obviously uh, you know lots of people have lost their lives, um, and 
you know, ultimately, when you have, uh, you know, a person who's who's going around stabbing people, uh, who is who has taken the decision to put on a fake vest, um, you know, when he woke up that morning, uh, it's it is a tough it is a tough uh, call in terms of you know whether whether that was the right or wrong, um, but you know certainly we we'll, we will see. In terms of answering your your sort of question there a little bit earlier, um, in terms of them all being at a prisoner rehabilitation uh, conference. I think the very interesting one here is one of the civilians who actually held this man down was released from prison, I believe, the week before with or within the week. Wow. Um, on a count of murder. Um, he had murdered a lady um, a whole however many years back. And uh, again, you know, on the subject of sort of redemption and rehabilitation, here he is uh, basically helping uh, prevent further injury um, from this attacker. What do you think about that? That's very interesting, um, and, and that's kind of the point I was trying to make, is that uh, you know, whenever these things happen, you worry that the anecdote of this one event is going to impact the decisions made on a macro level, um, and often you don't hear about the thousands of prisoners who were released from prison and had reformed their lives and had made their lives something yeah. better and had got back to society and kind of righted some of the wrongs that they inflicted on society. And so it's always important to remember that these anecdotes are often like sensationalized in the media they are blown up to huge proportions and you don't hear about the thousands of cases that went the other way um and so while it's a very very dangerous um kind of argument sometimes and it's a very hot debate it's nice to hear things like that where someone who has been reformed from prison and has kind of righted their wrongs is able to be involved in in something like that definitely Definitely. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens, certainly on the law front. Um, there's been lots of calls to look at how these types of cases, terrorist-related cases, are, are treated in terms of prison sentences, the actual monitoring uh, you know, following release, all of those types of things. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Um, but certainly, you know, for the people of London, I think uh, it's absolutely tragic that, that two young people lost their lives. Um, I think, I believe they were Cambridge students in their early 20s. Um, so sure. absolutely tragic for them and their families. Um, and yeah, I mean, we, we will definitely just have to see what happens in terms of the, the laws. And in terms of the police response, I think, uh, you know, they, they definitely should be congratulated for that. And uh, certainly a, a statement coming out from the Queen thanking the civilians as well who risked their lives in ultimately keeping this person on the ground. So, yeah, that was definitely uh, something tragic to hear about. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll, we won't see anything like that again. Yeah, let's hope so. And condolences to all the families who were involved. Um, yeah, it's always a tough situation. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, I think that uh, covers what happened this week. Uh, we actually are recording this podcast a little bit earlier than, than usual. Um, so, you know, there may be some extra things to throw on this list next week. But uh, this is it for today. Let's move on to the next segment. Stuff I found interesting. Right, so stuff I found interesting. Barry has uh, done a lot of thinking this week and has uh, come across a lot of things. So yeah, let's uh, let's pass over to Barry. So the, I mean, the first one, uh, something to do with uh, the Gabon national election um, and essentially the the president. This one looks interesting. I'm really keen to to hear the background. Yeah, sure. So this is something that I find fascinating. I mean, we we're chatting about fake news a bit earlier and how that can be really dead, like 
detrimental to an election. Yeah. And this story is kind of on the other side of the coin where there's an argument to be made that fake news could have been helpful. Um, and I'm going to talk through the story and let you make your own decisions and your own interpretations. This story comes from a fantastic podcast I listen to called Radio Lab, which is probably one of my favorite podcasts. Right. And they did an incredible piece on this. So I'm not going to do it justice. So please go and listen <laughs> to that. Um, but I'm going to talk you through some of the major points because I think there's some really interesting things here. Basically, Gabon is a country in the west of Africa. It's just west of the of the Congo. Um, and it's a very, very small African country. A lot of people don't even know about it or don't know where it is. Um, and as such, a lot of the, there isn't much media around its happenings and things going on. Unfortunately, in the, in the country of Gabon, there's a dictator at the moment who's been there for a long time. He took over from his father, a guy called Ali Bongo. And so he's the president of Gabon. And he's been well known for um, killing political rivals and jailing political rivals and using all sorts of nefarious ways to keep his power. He kind of rules with an iron fist and is, is quite well known as a... Almost, almost a terrorist in a way. Um, very, very controversial figure. Gabon itself is a very, very poor country, and the majority of the country lives under extreme poverty. And he lives this incredible life. I was looking at some photos. He's got crazy amounts of supercars and mansions, and he's basically living off the wealth of Gabon. So it's a really, really sad story. Um, and as as the internet has come online and Gabon has started to realize it can actually stand up to dictators and, and so, it's been a kind of a groundswell from the people looking to looking for change. And this change is coming in his political rival, a guy by the name of Jean Ping. Now, Jean Ping is a fascinating figure. He's kind of raised up and he wants to get real democracy into Gabon. Because at the moment, they have democracy in inverted commas because they still vote and whatnot, but it's all rigged and, and Ali Bongo doesn't really lose elections, right? But this, this, this Ping guy has kind of come up and he's starting to challenge and he's raising a lot, of, a lot of support to try and change the future of Gabon. Right. In 2016, they had uh, that was their last election, and this is the this is the chance where Jean Ping had a really really good chance of winning because he had this support, often buoyed by a lot of Gabonese people all around the world who aren't in Gabon anymore. So from the U.S. and Europe and whatnot, right. using the power of social media, using the power of media itself to talk to the Gabonese people and try and explain to them why the dictator needs to go. Right, and so. In that 2016 election, he did incredibly well, and he won, I think, eight of the nine provinces on the vote. Amazing. And so all of the polls were saying he was going to win the election, he was going to get it right, and for some, for some reason, it's, it's still allegations, we don't actually know the truth, but for some reason, in the ninth province, Ali Bongo's party won 97% of the votes, and that gave them just enough votes to win the entire country election. Right, so it's a stinking case of voter fraud and a really, really dangerous thing for democracy. Um, it caused a huge, huge controversy and, and, and a huge uproar and riots in the cities and all that kind of stuff because it was so obviously voter fraud. Right, so that's kind of the background for the story. So he remains the president of Gabon, even though it's kind of well known and the UN was trying to get involved and whatnot that this was the this was the case. Right. In October of 2019, a, a few weeks ago, he suffered a stroke, right, and kind of went MIA. He wasn't attending meetings anymore. He wasn't giving public appearances, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a rumor that started to go around that he had actually died and because no one knew where he was and no one was saying anything. So what these Japanese um, expats were doing from around the country was spreading the fake news that he was dead without having 
a, a backup of actual facts, right? Because they realized that this might be what was needed to get the coup going to actually change the country's um, direction, right? And so they, knowing that they weren't sure he was dead, they had some reasons to believe it, but also some reasons not to believe it. They decided to start spreading, the, and it became a meme and a hashtag and all of those good things, right. and trying to convince the people of Gabon that their president had died and it's time for a, a new ruler or a new party to rule. So obviously there's huge ethical dilemmas there um, because this is an example of fake news that potentially could be in a means to an end for a better future for Gabon. But at the same time, it still is fake news. It still is misleading. It still is kind of, it's doing exactly what a dictator would do, but the other way. Um, and so it's a classic philosophical discussion between do the means justify the end, for example. So using fake news for this kind of thing, for a thing that is obviously in the better obviously for the good of the country yeah. but it's still ethically problematic right so that i think this, that's the first um, interesting discussion and we'll come back to it now chad yeah. the second thing is that ali bongo um his response to this because now the memes are going around that he's dead we found out later that he was in a hospital in saudi arabia but no one knew at the time and what they did was they released a video of him giving a speech to try and prove that he was alive during this time but if you watch the video He's slurring, he's slurring his words. It doesn't uh -huh. really make sense. The face doesn't look, doesn't look perfect. And eventually they figured out this is what they call a deep fake. And what a deep fake is, is when you use artificial intelligence to superimpose someone's head or someone's face onto someone else's no head. Ways. And the technology has got so good these days that you can take anybody's face, as long as you have enough video of them, and you can make them say whatever you want them to say. Because wow. they will sample the words that you've used in the past and the facial expressions you've used in the past. And you put like a, the best way to describe it is a CGI head on someone else's body. So what, the, so what the government did was they got someone else to stand there and then they superimposed Bongo's head onto it to try and prove that he was alive. This obviously caused even more controversy because this kind of fueled the fire of the fake news because now they were saying, okay, if they're using a deep, deep fake, he's definitely dead and they're trying to buy themselves time to try and figure out what to do. So, so those are the two d debates and I, I want to hear your thoughts, Chad. The first one is using fake news for the good of the country or as a means to an end, yes or no. And then the second one is the, this deep fake thing, which is kind of, kind of terrifying because often we use video as proof of someone that said something and we kind of use it as the ultimate truth. Yep. But if videos can be photoshopped in the way that, f that pictures can, what does that say for video? So I'd love to hear your thoughts, Chad. Absolutely fascinating. I think I think that the fascinating thing here is that you know this a lot of this stuff happens just sort of you know in the background and and, and a lot of it's not at the front you know at the front of the news of news of the newspapers of the news pages. Um, a lot of the stuff we you know we don't even know about. I personally have never heard about this uh, you know sort of this leader and this. Um, leadership really um and i was actually just last night actually watching the the, ep the the season two final episode of uh jack ryan now i'm not sure if you've watched jack ryan but season two is really set in venezuela under the exact same conditions that you describe where you have a person who is ultimately a, a kind of you know terrorist himself really who who does everything and anything necessary to keep his leadership uh, you know to keep his leadership position and uh, you know ultimately in the background uh, just signing away the uh, wealth and and you know economic development of the country um, just to make sure that he kind of stays afloat himself um, so that was fascinating to 
basically to discover that this is actually happening in real life uh, for me is you know really interesting yeah that that's a key thing for me i think that i've been i've been doing a lot of work in ai ethics in the last couple of months and a lot of times the kind of the developed world so san francisco and london and bon- and hong kong and whatnot are inventing these thought experiments to think yeah. about different ethical dilemmas when it comes to ai but there's real life examples like this where the dilemma is actually being faced by real people. But because it's yep. in a random African country, no one hears about it. So I think that's a great point. Yeah, and then I mean, just in terms of in terms of answering your your question there, you know, what when you have uh, fake news that is used for the greater good, is that all right? I mean, I think it, it becomes really really tough when you have an environment that is not ethically sound. Um, I mean, even when I was watching this this Jack Ryan episode, you you definitely, as you say, question all the little bits of dilemmas at every single stage of the reaction. So you know, if there is a person who is killing a bunch of people, um, you know, for for no reason whatsoever, really just taking out good lives, um, basically anyone who disagrees with him, he'll kind of take out. This is in Jack Ryan. I'm not talking about Ali Bongo, but I mean, I guess it, it's sort of in the same uh, same context. You know, is then the response fair? Um, and it does. It does become an, an interesting question. It does become an interesting debate. Um, so, you know, personally, on this side of the, the coin, based on what you described, I think I think the you know the fake news is is fair um, in terms of you know getting getting this person out and, and and putting forward a candidate who's there for the right reasons. Um, but at the same time, you know we've had similar cases in South Africa, um, you know where we had Jacob Zuma leading uh, state capture was kind of uh, you know core to to his rule, um, and it it becomes tricky. At what point do you kind of start do the people of the country start stepping in themselves with things like fake news and at what point do you have to rely on the judicial system giving a person uh, you know a, a chance at a free trial um, but in a case like this where they sort of constantly are able to evade that free trial and, and evade any sort of consequences it becomes really tough um, and I think I think the interesting part here is it is a debate there is no right or wrong answer um, but ultimately uh, where you lie on that piece of, of the of that side of the, the coin or on that side of the debate is is, is an interesting one so uh, I mean, that's my thoughts on it. Um, I'm I'm not sure what you think. Yeah, I I don't know what I think either. I've been <laughs> I've been fascinated by it since I since I heard it, and I've been thinking a lot about it. And it talks to the major rift in philosophy. So in philosophy, there's kind of two schools of thought that kind of diverge right at the beginning of the and and the one is called consequentialism, and the one is called deontology. And consequentialism basically says that the right action is something that has the right consequences in the end. Right. So it doesn't matter what you do in the, in the interim, but as long as it has the right result at the end, that's the right action. Deontology is the opposite. Deontology says it doesn't matter what the consequences are. If your intentions were good and the action was good, then that's the right decision to make. And, and that's been a debate for centuries. And this is exactly the debate. Is that is it, is, it, is it okay to use fake news as a means to an end? I don't know. And it depends on where you sit on that spectrum. Yeah. Another interesting thing for me is that it makes us think about what tools do we have as a world to r- remove dictators from our world, right? Yeah. So, for example, in Gabon, there's theoretically there's democracy, there's voting, and that's that's the, that's the tool you're supposed to use to remove someone who's not for the good of the people, right? Yeah. But if democracy is broken, and if there's voter fraud, and the people in power actually control those votes anyway, what other tools do you have shy of assassinating the president? Do you, what tools do you have to actually remove them? 
Um, and this whole social media game and the internet and public opinion and all this globalization has kind of brought this whole new tool set that people are trying out in various ways. We've seen it with Russia interfering with, with the US. We've seen it yeah. with the UK fake news. We've seen it all over the place, Venezuela included. And uh, everyone's trying out these tools and we haven't thought, I don't think we've thought deeply enough about like where does the ethics come in and, and what what tools are okay to use in which circumstances. It's a yeah. very, very difficult one. Um, and for me, I'm just sad that a story like this didn't get more press and didn't get more 100%. discussion because these are the sorts of AI dilemmas and these are the sorts of social media dilemmas we should be having. And this is the real life. This is affecting real people on the ground. But instead, in developed countries, we often just talk about thought experiments of like philosophical things, the trolley experiment, etc., which is great and interesting and whatnot, but there's real problems to be solved here and i wish yeah. more people were working on it absolutely yeah i mean it, it definitely definitely interesting just to hear those those two schools of thought i mean i i suppose my school of thought was you know kind of uh, that the consequences of this action are right but you're completely right i mean intention i think is is also a key one and this is a very interesting debate that um you know i'm definitely going to do a bit more research on um can sorry. i can i throw a thought, ex a thought experiment at you quickly <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> so, so talking about a, a simple one to us will hopefully explain kind of the differences and why this is such a difficult conversation. So the, the typical one that kind of shows the difference between consequentialism and deontology is, say, for example, a, a armed robber comes to your door and knocks on your door, right? And your partner goes to hide behind a cupboard or something to, to get away from the robber. And the robber asks you, is anyone else home, yeah. right? The consequentialist answer is to say no and to lie to that person because sure. obviously it's going to save that person's life. Sure. The deontological view might be to say lying is bad in all cases. You should never lie and therefore right. you should tell the guy. Right. Um, and so that's an example where everyone's going to be like, no, I'm going consequentialism <laughs> all, all the way, right? Because I'm going to yeah. save that person. Um, but then there are some people on the other side of the coin which will hear a different thought experiment where lying will actually be you can get away with lying and you can improve the world with lying, but lying is not necessarily a good thing. Um, and so it's, it's one of the most fascinating discussions in philosophy. And I don't think anyone sits at either end of the scale. It's like a spectrum and you kind of sit on different pieces depending on what the context, what, how, how sure. much it matters to you yeah. and the context itself. Yeah. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Definitely uh, keen on this topic. Um, and I think we've, you know, we've spoken about maybe having some guests uh, in these sort of subjects in the future. So that'll be definitely an interesting theme to develop. But uh, certainly just just in terms of addressing the, the tools at hand uh, to, you know, remove a, a person in power who is clearly not there for the right reasons. Um, you know, it, it, it's a very interesting one, especially when this person has access to the military. And certainly, this Jack Ryan plot, uh, you know, definitely becomes scary when you start thinking about what is possible when a leader has access to the military. It is really very scary. Um, and, and certainly, yeah, we'll have to see what, how those tools develop. But very good that, you know, as technology is, is coming on, we kind of have a few more options. So uh, I think it's always interesting. Do you need a sort of third party body who kind of manages this decision is there is there a third party body who needs to be um you know set up that that essentially decides as you said when lying is good but also then who watches them right it's, yep. it's the who watches the watches argument so you can go back as many times as you want to say you have a united nations which is supposed to be this overseeing third party uh, who kind of mediates certain debates and mediates yep. certain uh, civil civil disputes 
Um, but again, who's making sure the UN? I mean, any anytime anyone has power, they have the opportunity to abuse it. Sure. And democracy has been our best invention in, in trying to fight that. But it's by no means perfect. And it's got a lot of flaws. And it's yeah. got a lot of loopholes. And uh, I think that I think we're watching democracy be tested in various places in various ways in the US, in the UK, in places like Gabon, in places like Greece and in China. We're seeing various versions of democracy being tested. Um, and there's lots of discussion there within political science to try and understand what is going to be the changes or the adaptations we need to make to this political system to make it more robust and to avoid more of these harms. And yeah. that's a difficult one. Fascinating. Um, yes, let's definitely see how that develops. I think we should certainly keep an eye on it uh, on this podcast just to give it some press that I think it should, as you say, very well deserve. In terms of moving on to the next one, I don't actually know anything about this, but there's a very technical term that's been inserted on this sheet <laughs> called uh, techno chauvinism. So, yeah, please talk us through this. Yeah, so this is a very short one. Um, I, I finished a book uh, yes, yesterday, I think it was yesterday, um, called Artificial Unintelligence, which I think is a great title to start off with. Um, it's by a researcher by the name of Meredith Broussard. Um, and to be honest, I was very disappointed with the book. I think it had a great premise to start off with and a great title, and I was very excited when I bought it. But when I read through it, I found the book quite weak, and, right. and that was disappointing. And so that's why I'm not recommending it to go and read it. <laughs> All I wanted to pull out was this one term, this one idea. And this is just a reminder that even in bad books, there are key ideas you can pull and golden nuggets right. nuggets you can pull from anywhere. So this is the golden nugget that I pulled from this book, and that's that term, like you said, techno-chauvinism. Basically, what this term tries to encapsulate is this idea from people who love technology and the idea that this dogmatic approach that says technology is going to make everything better in every circumstance, right? So the idea is that a lot of us, and I think I am often, often fall into this camp, is that I think the more technology, the better. And technology is going to make things better and better no matter what. And what Meredith Broussard tries to push back against is exactly this and saying that, hold on, technology is very useful in certain instances and for certain types of things, but we must be careful not to be dogmatic about it and just assume that data and technology will always make things better. An example that she uses is that often we kind of think that data-driven insights are always better than human gut decisions, right? Because we can look at numbers on a spreadsheet and we can say, cool, we can see the data, we can see objectively what happened and therefore we can make decisions based on that. What she kind of reminds us is that that data is all human generated anyway, right? A human decided how to collect yeah. that data or yeah. where to put the sensors or how to structure that data, how to clean it, how to present that data. And with graphs and numbers, you can do whatever you want, right? You can do amazing things with it and you can show eight or nine different scenarios from one piece of information. And so all this term is trying to remind us is that do not get caught up in this technology makes everything better all the time because that's not the case. There are certain instances where we need to say no to technology and use our human instinct and judgment for the moment at least um, and, and just kind of be more careful with how we use the word data and not just think that data is perfect and data is clean and data is ready because it's not. It's created by humans and there are flaws and biases and prejudice and all sorts of things baked into those into that data and therefore into the algorithms themselves. Um, and so that's all I've got to say on that one. I just want to raise that point. Um, if you would like to go and read the book, please don't. Go and find a summary online. Um, but techno-chauvinism is a great, a great um, idea and a great term that I think we should be thinking about. Um, and just keeps us on, on the straight and narrow. Technology is not always the best thing. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, thanks for, for grabbing that golden nugget and, uh, yeah, certainly highlighting that it's, you know, not such a great book in terms of the, the sort of key theme and, and uh, yeah, in terms of how, how it, basically how it met your expectations. Yeah, so I, I, I just want to say, like, I, I think we need more books like this. So that's why I was so disappointed. I think there are books to be made on the other side of the coin, right? Yeah. So AI is is a very, very topical discussion. It's something I'm very passionate about. I want to see more books pushing back on the concept of AI. And so this one wasn't executed well, but I'm hoping there are more books coming in the future, which have a similar premise, but arguments are a bit stronger. Amazing. Cool, let's move on to the next one. Uh, so yeah, this one, uh, a lot of people's favorite or worst rapper, um, depending on where <laughs> they sit on, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of preference, it seems like there is either that view, a lot of people kind of uh, feel very strongly about this particular person, um, but it's certainly been developing that he has his own personal uh, sort of Sunday service uh, in his local church. And what, what do you think about that? Yeah, so this is something I've been fascinated by, and I know it's strange coming from me. I don't, I don't look like a traditional Kanye West fan, um, <laughs> but I, I am a Kanye West fan, right. and uh, he, I think he's a fascinating character. We've, we all, we've all kind of watched because he's such a superstar rapper, and he's like so, so well known and in the Kardashian family now, and all that kind of thing. We've all kind of followed his journey, and he's undoubtedly a wacky dude. He's yeah. undoubtedly a very wacky dude. Um, I know he's had a lot of mental struggles. He's had a lot of physical struggles. He's had a, a, quite a, a challenging mental life in a way. Sure. And he's gone through lots of therapy and he's had mental breakdowns and he's abused opioids for a period and done a lot of things that have kind of shown that there's some mental health issues behind the scenes, right? Yeah. And in the rap genre itself, he's obviously, like rap is, rap is relatively well known for talking about women and sex and money and all of these sort of, um, more edgy things that are not so much the Christian thing. And so when he came out of this latest like little period of his and has come out with a gospel album called Jesus is King, it kind of, it was very, very controversial and very, very interesting because for a rapper like him to come out with a gospel album talking about how he's been born again as a Christian and has kind of come into religion is, is really interesting. And of course, you get the haters who will say he's just doing this for publicity, and I don't know if that's the case. You get the Christians who love, like, they've got the superstar on the books now and they, they're milking yeah. it till the cows come home. And to be honest, no one knows the true intention other than Kanye West. So I, yeah. I don't want to debate the intentions of him. What I wanted to bring out was that it's such an interesting musical move. And when I listened to the album, I was like, okay, cool, it's interesting. But what really what really like caught my attention was when I watched a little bit of his live performance, which they call the Sunday service. And he does it with this full gospel choir. And when you watch it live, it's actually incredible. It's an incredible piece of music and an incredible atmosphere he builds with this live album. And what's so special is that he brings three different genres together, right? So it's primarily a gospel album. But also, it's got the rap of Kanye West, and it's got this jazz from these trumpets and saxophones and amazing instrumentalists in in yeah. in, in the band itself. Um, and so, as a music, a piece of music, and as an experience and an atmosphere, I think it's fascinating. I don't know if you ever have a chance to watch any of it, Chad. I haven't actually watched any of it, but I've definitely seen people drawing attention to the services going on. So I was actually really uh, chuffed when I saw you brought this one up. Um, in terms of the guests at a lot of these services, I believe a lot of the guests are celebrities. Um, I've seen people like, obviously, as you say, Kim Kardashian being his wife, but, uh, you know, people like Orlando Bloom, um, you know, sort of Justin Bieber and the likes. Um, in terms of 
entering the service, I believe they are required to hand in their phones and, and kind of have to sign some sort of a wave of, of you know, kind of confidentiality and that, and that kind of thing. But I believe a lot of these recordings are released um, by Kim, who is kind of the, the sort of key speaker um, of, of these services. Um, so yeah, I definitely need to go and, and have a watch. Uh, I know he is an incredibly talented musician um, and I certainly have enjoyed uh, some of his music in the past. Um, in terms of his intention, I think, uh, you know, we obviously not going to discuss that at length, but there certainly has been a theme of, uh, you know, he had a song called Jesus Walks a while back. Um, so this is not a completely new idea. Dear, but I certainly, you know, I can see why people are, are kind of questioning it, given how this is now the sole focus um, on this record. What's 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 interesting with the Jesus Walks in particular is that the song yeah. that he released like a few, it was probably a few years ago now, it was one of his biggest songs, Jesus Walks, like you say. And if you listen to the lyrics of the original, it was more... It felt more egotistical in a way. He was almost right. making the case that Jesus was walking with him because he, he's very arrogant and he considers sure. himself the greatest <laughs> artist ever. Um, and so that's kind of what the song's connotations were. If you listen to how they perform it now, they've completely changed the lyrics. And what I found really powerful was that in these services, Kanye West is not the center of it. He's very, very intentional in being off to the side, dressed okay. like everybody else. It, it's not the same egotistical Kanye West we used to be see, used to see. And that's what makes it interesting for me. I, I think them I think there's been some sort of genuine spiritual shift there. And I think I think he might have changed his mindset. And that's why I wanted to bring up the fact that let's let's for a moment assume he's his good intentions, assume that this is a real like change of mind and he really wants to change his life and the way that he lives. Um is there a road to redemption for someone like him? Sure. For for a large portion of the world who maybe have written him off because of what he's said in the past, what he's done in the past, and the kind of person that he's been in the last 20 years, is there a road to redemption where we can forgive some of his transgressions, some of the things that he said about slavery and all those sorts of things in the past, and look at him as a new Kanye West? Because we're kind of in this cancel culture at the moment where one bad tweet from 10 years ago can ruin your career and you never get a chance to be forgiven. Yeah. So I was curious to hear what you thought, Chad, and I was like, what? What does the road to redemption look like if you're a global superstar like this and you seem to have made this giant life shift? That's a really interesting question. I think uh, people will have to decide for themselves, um, as you say, based on their sort of internal moral compasses, really. Um, but I mean, certainly if, if it comes across as authentic um, and, you know, he, he starts walking the talk, um, I, I certainly don't see a reason why he could not at least attempt to, uh, you know, redeem himself. Uh, very interesting to see, and I mean, even just the fact that he has got this going, um, you know, I think it, I think it's definitely a, a positive thing, if if anything else. Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll have to watch the space and see what happens. Let's watch that space. Let's move on to the next one. Uh, it's looking ahead. Looking ahead. So as we have discussed a, a bit of the banking system in our previous episodes, obviously the, the natural question of how does a bank make its money uh, comes into question and certainly with the world evolving, uh, you know, the, basically the point of, of transaction costs. So Barry, you've seen and basically uh, you've come across an example of an extremely low transaction cost uh, on, on a particular transaction. Please talk us through that. 
Sure thing. So yeah, transaction costs are the friction in the financial system, right? They're the reason that banks exist and that's kind of how they make the money, like you said. And a lot of the, the talk around cryptocurrency and blockchain technology is by trying to take out those intermediaries and save on those transaction costs in between. So I came across this very interesting thing. There's a Twitter account uh, called, I think it's Bitcoin Wales, I think it's called. Okay. And what it does is it tracks the biggest Bitcoin transactions there are around the world and just tweets them out. And because Bitcoin is a fully public ledger, you can yep. look at every transaction ever made. You can see the amounts, who sent it to who, et cetera, et cetera. And so I saw this tweet where there was a transaction, I think it's about a week or so ago now. Someone transferred 44,000 Bitcoin. And just put that in perspective, that is worth, at, at the time of the transfer, 310 million US dollars. Wow. That is a significant <laughs> amount of money to be sending. And I can only speculate as to what that was for. Sure. I, it, it seems like drug money. It has to be drug money. I don't know what else it could be. Um, but 310 million US dollars transferred like this. And what the transaction cost was for that was 32 US cents. Wow. which is basically negligible. Yep. So that is an example of the kind of frictionless environment that cryptocurrency tries to provide and tries to, to talk about. Um, and it's it's quite a scary number. And if you think yeah. about that in the perspective of what banks would have charged for that kind of transfer, it's chalk and cheese. Um, and so, yeah, I, I wanted to bring that up and, and hear about your thoughts, Chad. I know you've done a little bit of work in foreign exchange yourself. So so what do you what do you think on this? I mean, I, the, the really interesting thing here is, um, firstly, so if we look at that 32 cents, um, in terms of who that would have been paid to, my understanding is that would be paid to anyone who is uh, actually mining Bitcoin. In other words, keeping the the ledger going. Um, so, so that, that that was my first point, which I think is is really interesting in terms of you know a shared sort of uh, shared remuneration, if you'd like. Um, in terms of the actual transfer, the the, the interesting thing here is obviously Bitcoin. Uh, you know, is, is not legislated, and uh, and so very interesting that it could go from one end of the globe to the other, not having passed through any sort of exchange controls or anything like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, in, in terms of the, the, the fees that, that a bank might charge for something like this, um, I mean, let's assume it was a domestic transaction. We would we would have seen sizable fees. Let's also add in, into this equation that it was an international transfer. And now you, you're looking at uh, really, really sizable uh, fees. I mean, certainly the work that, that you referred to um, in terms of, um, basically I did a due diligence before on a foreign exchange intermediary in South Africa. So essentially um, where the intermediary isn't actually the ultimate uh, trader, but basically arranges the, the buying and selling and arranges uh, you know, the, the person who's, who's actually ultimately doing that trade. And I think it's a certainly an, an interesting place. I think long gone are the days where banks charge 3% on the commission. Uh, so that's the rate that they basically build in to this uh, foreign exchange rate. Um, and I mean, on top of that, you see sort of foreign exchange uh, transfer fees as well. So, I mean, considering that this person paid 32 cents for, you know, $310 million is scary. Um, and yeah, I mean, certainly for the for the sort of exchange regulations and, and that kind of thing as well, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see if this one's going to be picked up on anyone's radar. As you said, it's a, it's a public ledger. Um, do you know of any countries keeping an eye on, on big transfers like this? Um, and in terms of that information that you mentioned uh, that is available to the public, when you say you can see who transferred to who, is it anonymized in some sort of way? Are we just talking about wallet code names? Are we talking about actual particulars of individuals? 
Yeah, so that's the reason that you that the countries can't really catch these guys is because yeah. these wallets are anonymized and it's simply two codes sending one to another. Right. And that code can be can be masked by what's called a private key in some instances. And so while you can see the transaction, you can see that person A sent to person B, you don't know who those people are. And so I think all countries are battling with this. How do you regulate this? How do you try and get your hands on that money? How do you ensure that the exchange controls are being met? And at the moment, no one's got it right yet. And that's the whole point of cryptocurrency. That's the whole point of Bitcoin is to do away with all of this friction in, in the marketplace. And so it's a very controversial one. I think that this is definitely going to be on the radars of a lot of people. And we've seen huge amounts before. I'm not sure ever this much amount, but I've, I've seen huge transactions go through before. Yeah. And uh, this is what the Bitcoin fanatics are pointing to towards as the future of financial services they imagine a world where sending someone money across the world is as easy as sending an email and it's yeah. just a commodity because at the end of the day all it's doing is it's sending numbers over the internet right we're not sending gold bars here we're not sending notes we're not there's nothing to be transferred sure. and so in a bitcoin world sending one cent and sending a hundred million dollars costs the same amount of money because it's just numbers on a screen um, and so it challenges this whole conception of what is value going to look like in the next hundred years? What are our children going to use to transact with? How are they going to get around? And for someone like we spoke about Venezuela earlier, Venezuela has been a huge Bitcoin um, like hotbed because their own currency has been devalued so quickly yeah. that people have been moving their life savings into Bitcoin so they can send it to their family members around the world. So I think it's a fascinating thing to watch. I, 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 th I find it hard to think how the regulators are going to get a handle on this. Yep. But we'll have to keep our eyes on it and uh, see what happens. Yeah, certainly not a, not a new topic. I mean, something that's been developing over the last uh, few number of years. I mean, I, I personally thought, uh, you know, a lot of the sort of initial fuss had kind of died down a bit. I mean, I certainly knew friends who were personally sort of investing, if you'd like, in in these uh, bitcoins and and a lot of them had uh, you know had made quite a quite a bit of profits in in a really short period of time but ultimately uh, you know a lot of them also lost a lot of money um, and and just in terms of yeah just in terms of confidence in the system I'm surprised to still see such a big transaction uh, materializing in in you know uh, however many years uh, that had passed since uh, since you know the the initial trend um, but I mean just certainly in terms of uh, in terms of this cash. My my sort of understanding is that somebody would still cash this out in some form of hard currency, or are there people who believe there are going to be vendors in the future, who and uh, essentially are they kind of just taking a risk that this forty four thousand Bitcoin will still be worth that same amount, or are we? D does it look like this type of transaction would still be cashed out into into hard currency? Yeah, so that's the biggest struggle with the, the system at the moment is that in order to cash that money out, you have to go through what's called an on-ramp and that on-ramp is into fiat currency. So through a bank or someone who's willing to cash that out. And that's when the regulator can finally get their hands on it, right? And so a lot of these transactions are sitting as Bitcoin in the system at the moment because there aren't many off-ramps and the ones that they are very highly regulated and very highly like watched. Right. And so I would from I would think that this guy would be holding onto this cash. Um, I think that what you spoke about, the hype, I think is a very relevant point but also the hype was this like frothy top where people who didn't understand the technology were getting in because the price was going through the roof, right? There are still a huge majority of the Bitcoin ecosystem who believes in this as a long-term change to the financial system and are not just speculating based on price. So I'm actually one of those people and I still own Bitcoin. And I've invested for a long time now. And I think that I'm just mentioning that for disclosure purposes <laughs> um, because I, I, I am a fan of the technology. 
And I think that the speculation of our friends and stuff who have been investing and then losing money and then winning money and whatnot, that, that was all merely gambling because sure. it was so early in the technology. But there is a, a, a groundswell of people who believe this is the future and are willing to leave their their value in these systems and not cash it out because they believe in the future they're going to be vendors who are going to accept it, who are going to accept it when it comes to online banking or buying goods and services or rent or investing in houses or all those kinds of things. Yeah, so I think it's an interesting space to watch. I think that cryptocurrency has caused a lot of um, debate and a lot of talking in the technology space. Mm-hmm. The banks are quivering, that's for sure, and they're trying to figure out how they're going to imp- impact this, this new world. Um, and transactions like this to show some of the value that cryptocurrency fanatics have been talking about. If we get to a world where there's frictionless tr- payments, frictionless transfers across borders, what is that going to look like on a global scale? And what does that mean for the huge industry that are the middlemen in all of this, right? The middlemen who are doing these yeah. transfers. So we have to watch the space. I think it's still far away, but we'll have to look at what happens. Well, we'll definitely keep an eye on that. And yeah, I, again, I'm absolutely fascinating that those types of uh, sizable transactions are still going on in the in, in the platform um to move on to yeah basically st- staying on the payment space and the sort of transaction space uh, obviously as we spoke about uh, in our last podcast uh, or the one before that i don't even remember uh, you know the tech giants starting to get involved in financial service type products apple pay one of the technologies that essentially just allows uh, any other sort of banks or, or registered entities to um, essentially, you basically use your your cell phone as a as an end device uh, instead of your card. Um, I got an email last night from Transport for London, um, the body that, as I said, owns and operates the tubes and buses, to say that they have actually got an additional setting now, one where you can actually turn off the need to authenticate um, before using the card. So this will only be for transport items. So this is not uh, saying somebody basically gets hold of your phone and and can then you know, go through and, uh, you know, buy things at various shops and that type of thing. But basically, um, you can now go onto the tube, onto the the bus and just tap your phone without even needing to double click and, you know, look at the screen or authenticate your fingerprint. Um, I believe one of the parts of this feature is that if your phone is dead um, and you've actually got the red battery signal, it will still work for five hours uh, after your phone's battery has died. So what is your thought about this, Barry? That that's that's fascinating, and that's where we hope the world goes to, right? Yeah. Trying to get convenience and all these things. And would you be able to like use your watch? So like, talk me through yep. what it would look like if you're going up to the the, the terminal. You're just putting your watch on the thing. You don't even take out your phone. Hundred percent. So if you have an Apple Watch, you would be able to walk. And this is only unique to Apple Pay. So we are kind of ignoring all of sure. the Google Pay and 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 uh, you know all of those types of things. So walk up to the, the terminal and literally normally you would have to have do some sort of gesture just to get the wallet feature up and going and um, whether it is a double click on your phone or you know holding your watch in some certain way um, but now you'll literally be able to once you've turned this feature on so it is something you need to elect to you'll be able to just walk up to this terminal and put your device against the sensor and it'll automatically register and let you through it's going to cut out a lot of the frustrations of commuters who are having to wait for people to you know get their apple pay ready um because you know certainly in (laughs) london it's extremely fast paced and if a person even takes three seconds to get their card out it's a massive annoyance so i think this will will definitely help with that but in terms of safety and security and stuff uh, there are caps on um basically the the sort of charges you can get on per day on um the transport for london system so 
if you're using pay-as-you-go, it, it sort of is confined to a certain limit within each day beyond using the tube once or twice in the day. If you if you use it, you know, a, a certain number of times, it's, you're going to hit that threshold anyway. So for me, risk is kind of mitigated in that way. I like that it's sort of narrowed just to transport links only. And I also love the fact that if your phone dies, you can still use it. Um, I personally don't think this gives enough of an incentive for somebody to steal my phone, but that's just me. Also, I think it's a point to another trend we're seeing is that technology gets more interesting when it becomes more invisible, right? Yeah. When it becomes more just part of your daily life and you don't even realize that that the, the payment has gone 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 across. And so the more technology kind of disappears into the background, it just kind of opens up the world for us. And instead of mediating the world through a phone or through a card or through, through a watch, the more we can take that away, the more magical it feels. And we start yeah. moving towards a Harry Potter type land where <laughs> things just happen for us. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah, we'll definitely see how the implementation actually works, and I'll certainly let you know uh, what it, what it yeah, comes across. Yeah, please, does. please, please test test it out for us and then report back. Absolutely. Let's move on to develop and grow. Develop and grow. So I believe we're running a little bit behind in terms of the the sort of duration of the episode. I don't know if we kind of just get too passionate that we spend too long talking on a topic, but hopefully it's interesting <laughs> to listen to and we'll certainly try and make up for it in the next few uh, items that we still have on our list today. This one, quite an interesting one, um, always fascinated about uh, sort of thought leaders on health and how to sort of extend lifespan. Barry has come across a person um, who has some interesting thoughts on this. So yeah. Please let us know. Definitely. So this is an idea I find fascinating, and it's not my idea at all. And so this is all attributed to a doctor by the name of Dr. Peter Tier. And Dr. Peter Tier is a doctor in the States, but is more well known for his longevity work. So he is fascinated with trying to extend human lifespan. Yeah. And he works across the board when it comes to exercise, diet, um, supplements, nootropics, all sorts of things to try and extend lifespan for the human being. And I was listening to an interview with him and he was chatting about the fact that often when we are young people, we get away with a lot of stuff that we shouldn't be getting away with. We can eat terrible food, we can not exercise, we kind of, we can not take care of ourselves but because we're young and because our cells are still healthy and we still metabolize well, we can get away with bad habits that are, get worse and worse as we get older, right? Yeah. And so for him, he's, he's a 60-year-old man thinking about his older age and obviously his body is not like it used to be in his, in his younger years. Um, and he was trying to think about how do you incentivize the right behavior for someone in their 20s or 30s to get the right habits in place so that it's not as hard down the line to all of a sudden decide, okay, after eating cheeseburgers for 20 years, now I'm going to start eating healthy and try and get my body right, right? And so he was trying to think about how do you incentivize that? And the reason it's so difficult is because as a 30-year-old as a or a 20-year-old, you can't think about your future like that you can't imagine being 80 years old and the bad health is caught up with you and the diseases yeah. and all that kind of stuff that come in with and so what he what he kind of put together was what he calls the centenarian olympics which is a term that i love <laughs> and basically what he imagines is he imagines what what do you want to be able to do when you're 100 years old so what kinds of physical movements what kinds of health things how fit do you want to be how mobile do you want to be at 100 
And if you were to set yourself some tasks that you want to perform in your 100, what would those look like? Yeah. So examples would be, say you've got your grandchild running towards you at full tilt. You want, to be able, you want to be strong and stable enough to be able to grab your grandchild and pick him up and kind of hug him, right? That's one example. Or if you want to carry your groceries up a few stairs to your, your house, you need to be able to pick up those groceries and walk those few steps into the house. Yeah. So very, very functional tasks that a 100-year-old would want to do. And basically what he says is cool. If that's the goal, that's the centenarian Olympics, that's the kind of the kind of fitness you want to be in that age. Yep. What if you walk that back to ninety and to eighty and to seventy and to sixty, knowing that your body's gonna deteriorate throughout that life? And what kind of training, what kind of support structures should you be looking at when you're in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s. So for example, things like, he kind of splits into four different things. The first one is stability. So mobility of your joints, your flexibility, can you stretch, Can you, do your hips work the way they should, yada, 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 to make sure you have the right functionality of movement in your body. That's something young people don't even care about. <laughs> like I know for myself, I don't stretch, I don't work on mobility yep. because it all works right now. But the habits of getting that ingrained into yourself because you're training for the centenarian Olympics is important, right? So that's the first part. The second part is strength. And we know strength training is incredibly important. And when we're young, we often train because we want huge biceps and we want to be able to deadlift a million pounds and all that kind of thing. And that's all great. It's good to be strong. But it's being strong in the right ways, functional strength. So it's not about the size of your biceps. It's about how strong your core is. Are you able to get up off the ground with ease? Are you able to lift? Are you able to pull things, etc.? And so thinking about it in that way and thinking about what do you need in, for your 100-year centenarian, centenarian Olympics, I think that's quite interesting. And the last two are cardiovascular, so anaerobic and aerobic training, right? So low-intensity endurance training, so running, swimming, rowing, etc., and high-intensity um, cardiovascular training, so sprints and heel sprints and those kinds of things. And so all it is is it's a thought experiment to remind yourself to get the right habits going in your life so that when you get to those older age, you haven't thrown away the 30 years beforehand and you're trying to start from scratch when you're 70 or 80 years old. And I, I like the idea of the Centenarian Olympics. Like when I'm 100, I want to be a strong-ass granddad. <laughs> I want to be picking up my grandkids. I want to be walking with friends. I want to be doing all that kind of thing. Um, so I thought that's I thought that would be interesting to bring up. Interesting topic and an interesting, um, basically an interesting way to to make it real um, and and start getting us to to think about these kind of things. I mean, that's the natural progression in life. We are all going to age. It's one of the the certainties of life, and we're all going to get there. Um, you know, we're we're definitely living longer than previous generations, um, and so this is how I think uh, you know we'll be able to to make progress and uh, and actually visualize how you know what 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 we want to be able to do when we get there, um, and ultimately set ourselves up. For for success. So thanks for bringing that one to our attention. Shall we move on to our question from our listener? Let's do it. What's on your mind? All right, so in this section, we look to you as the listeners, as the audience, to bring the questions. And we've got a few questions this week, and we've picked one. I know Chad's got a voice note. Just a reminder, for anyone who would like to send in a question, make sure to send it to us on Anchor or on any of the social media platforms. We'd love to hear what you want to ask. Uh, but Chad, you've got a question for us today. Absolutely. So this one comes from Raphael and here is his question. Hey, so following on the Tesla point, um, what do you guys think about um, self-driving cars? Yeah, so I mean, self-driving cars is the sort of bulk of, of the question. I mean, just general thoughts, Barry. Um, obviously, we, we could expand quite 
further on to this. But I mean, I think one of the one of the sort of interesting streams of questioning that comes uh, through from this is who the liability could fall onto. So obviously, one day, you know, this is kind of where we're going in terms of getting to a world where cars can, uh, you know, they're autonomous uh, vehicles. Are there any debates at the moment uh, going on about uh, who the liability could fall onto in terms of damage? Um, and then also just on a wider note, you know, what are your general thoughts of self-driving cars? Yeah, so I've got lots of thoughts on this, and I think we should definitely touch <laughs> on this topic in future as well. Self-driving cars yeah. for me is is fascinating. It's it's a it's philosophy brought into real life, and we were chatting a little bit earlier about philosophical thought experiments in real life, and self-driving cars is exactly that, right? So the idea that you can have this car that's going to drive itself completely without the need of a human driver. Um, and the idea is that as humans, we make a lot of mistakes on the road. We are not concentrating. We get we have lapses yeah. in judgment. We have poor reaction times, etc. And a lot of the accidents on the roads and a lot of the deaths on the roads is because of human error. So the idea of autonomous cars is that it's going to take away those those errors and going to hopefully make the roads safer. And that's something I agree with. What the what the struggle is that the, these systems are never perfect. And talking about techno chauvinism sure. earlier, like technology is never perfect. There are going to be mistakes. <laughs> there are going to be things that go wrong. And when a human when a human makes a mistake, it's easy to be able to say, "Cool, that's where the blame lies. That's where the guilt lies. That's where you should get reparations from for someone who's suffered or someone who's gone through damages, etc." When we're looking at a self-driving car, there's no one to point to, right? And so the debate becomes: Are you looking at the manufacturer of the car? Are you looking at the software engineer who designed the algorithm that drives the car? Are you looking at the company that employed that software engineer? Um, and that's a legal discussion that no one knows what it's going to look like in the future. And we've, we've already had one or two deaths from self-driving cars already um, in the prototype yep. stage from, from Google and from Uber. Um, and so I think we're already looking at this discussion. And it's, it's something that I don't know the answer to. And I don't even know where I stand because I can yep. see the arguments on all three of those nodes. And for me, it's too early to say. At the moment, self-driving is a little bit of a, of a misnomer. Like the technology is not there yet, even though the, the, sure. the guys who are really excited think it is. Um, at the moment, <laughs> it can only do like very controlled environments. So highways with very well lit and like very simple kind of geographies. Uh, we haven't seen it tested under various conditions around the world. So it's still slow and it's still getting there. But this legal yep. discussion and this ethical discussion is is very important to have because by the time you get to that point, you need to have understood what you want to do with this, right? And there's a lot of ethical discussions as to are you going to program ethics into this machine? So, for example, if a car is barreling down a highway and there's an obstruction in the way or a car is stopped, does the car hit that car in order to save not going into the oncoming traffic? Does the car go into the oncoming traffic to kind of avoid the obstacle and potentially put the driver at risk? And there's interesting debates in that sense as to what the car is going to choose to do in those circumstances and who is responsible for those decisions. Um, and so those are some of my thoughts. I, they're still very half-baked, I know, and I, I, I've got a lot of different ideas and a lot of thoughts about it. Um, but Chad, we're curious to hear what you think. Well, yeah, I think I think as you say, we'll we'll definitely uh, touch on it further um, in in sort of future podcasts. But I mean, it's certainly exciting technology. I think the the, the tricky thing is it's it's implementation. Um, I think artificial intelligence is obviously quite quite key in this one in terms of how it arrives at its decisions. And as you said, uh, you know, in in one particular instance there could be a number of right decisions and ultimately you know which is the right one to take um so we'll certainly uh, you know keep keep 
an eye on that. As this question was brought up, I was actually just thinking in London, we have a kind of a form of a self-driving vehicle. It's not a car, um, but there is a tube line, the DLR, which is called the Docklands Light Railway, um, which is an automated light metro system. Um, and it's actually been going for some time. Um, and the strangest thing is being able to walk right to the front of the train and uh, not seeing a driver there. So uh, that's a certainly an, an interesting um, thing to do. But yeah, I mean, certainly in terms of the this general discussion, I think it's quite an interesting one. And uh, we'll have to see what, what happens ultimately. I mean, at the moment, as you say, uh, lo- loads of companies are testing their technology. Um, a lot of a lot of this technology is actually studying from humans and and studying from their reactions under certain circumstances. So um, we'll we'll certainly see how how that develops. But uh, this ethical question of you know who liability should lie on, as you said, um, I just I just did a quick Google search and yeah, I mean saw in in March 2018 there was an, an incident, as you said, from from Uber, um, where the prosecutor has ruled now that Uber themselves are not going to be liable, um, but it's possible that the backup driver might be. Um, so. So yeah, we'll certainly have to see what happens and, and hopefully um, there aren't a lot more deaths, um, you know, and, and hopefully we, we don't actually need to know such a, a such a question because the answering of this question basically um, infers that something has happened um, and obviously we, we don't want that to be the case. So uh, we'll, we'll certainly keep an eye on that but yeah thanks definitely for your your views there barry um so i think that's us at the end of our episode again another another long one um but yeah hopefully it's it's been interesting to listen to um we'd definitely as always love to hear your feedback um we're now up on so many platforms again um and again uh, i actually wanted to mention this a little bit earlier but uh, barry did you know we have some listeners in spain i didn't i did it in spain yo <laughs> spanish represent i in love spain. it Absolutely. So yeah, we're definitely uh, starting to to infiltrate, uh, you know, the airwaves of uh, of the world, taking um, so over the world, fantastic. taking over the world, <laughs> <laughs> taking over the world. Um, so yeah, thanks for for tuning in. And if you are listening to us on a platform that has a sort of rating system or lets you leave reviews, um, you know, certainly we know that Apple Podcasts allow you to do that. So please do leave us a review um, if you've enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, we just want to kind of share share this platform to as many people as possible so if you know of anyone who could uh, also benefit from from tuning in on a weekly basis um, definitely share and we will certainly appreciate that what one last thing for me is just saying good luck for tomorrow chad's starting a new job tomorrow so if you're listening to the scene of good vibes um, i know he's going to do great and i'm excited so good luck for tomorrow buddy Thanks very much, Barry. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that. Um, it'll certainly be an adjustment. I've had a, a month of fun employment, doing some traveling, and uh, certainly where this this podcast came into fruition. So yeah, we'll we'll certainly have to be just adjusting our schedules just to make sure we are still sort of religiously doing this weekly. But don't you worry, uh, we are here to stay um, all the way through up to the end of the year and beyond. Thanks for tuning in to Across the Pond. This was episode four, and we'll see you next week. Oh, 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 oh,